God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray and ask God to help us here. Father, you give us everything that we need. You supply us with your spirit. You supply us with your word. You supply us with true redemption through your Son. Lord, he is true life. He is true health. He is truly the bread of life on which we can feed and be sustained. Lord, I pray now that you would sustain us by his work, by his wisdom, by his power. In his name we pray. Amen. So, well, that happened. <laughs> we bought the stand today, and still working the bugs out. Um, I'll mess with that. Uh, <laughs> so, when I was in school, uh, at college, I could never really figure out how I got into the college that I got into. Uh, I went to a, uh, a large public high school in Alabama, which is not great, but it wasn't um, good either. Thanks, Madison. Um, and so when I got to college, I was surrounded by all these people who were much smarter than I was and worked much harder than I did. Um, but I did not, I was not totally aware of that my first semester there. And so my first semester, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to knock out some general education requirements. And I took calculus in high school. I made a B. I thought, I can do this. So I start uh, in calculus at Emory. And for the first few weeks roll around, the ad drop period ends. And yeah, <laughs> you can kind of hear the doors like, shink, <laughs> shut. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and uh, man. I was terrible at calculus, and it wasn't because I didn't try. I tried as hard as I could. I never tried harder in any class in my entire life in calculus. And I was in there with people who, as soon as they would sit down, they were like this bro from L.A. He would lay his head down on the desk and fall asleep, and an hour and a half later, he'd wake up and be like, what did I miss, man? And <laughs> everything. You missed everything. We're dead. <laughs> But he was fine. Brother California was fine. <laughs> he literally made 100 on every test. Uh, I went to every single office hour. I hired a tutor. I studied, I kid you not, 20 hours plus for every single test and quiz that I took in that class. And I never made higher than a 45 on anything. <laughs> anything. For real. I mean, I didn't go into college thinking that I was going to be the guy that would one day build bridges, but I thought I could do better than this. <laughs> and it was brutal. Y'all, it was so brutal. Uh, all of, and what was so brutal about it was that I thought that I was this relatively smart guy. All of my efforts, my best effort, I mean, my best of my best of my best efforts amounted to a failing grade. And not even a good failing grade, but like a really bad failing grade. Because by nature, I could not do what was required of me. I just did not have it in me as hard as I tried, as much as I studied. It was just beyond my abilities. I probably have a learning disability in that. I'm just going to own that. <laughs> Here, Paul is talking about the law. He's talking about it again. And he's saying that only through trying to work under the law, that he and Peter and some of the other Jewish Christians realized that they were no better than the people they kind of looked down on 
and said, you know, they didn't have the advantages uh, that we had. We grew up in a religious household with the Bible. And we've thought about what it means to be right before God, and they never did. And we've worked at this thing, and we've tried to knock it out, and we've tried to live by and through the law. And Paul just kind of gets to this point in his life where he realizes that just by nature of who he is, through his best efforts, through his best accomplishments, that he will never be better than a demonist. He will fail every time at the law. Because he in himself is just not the kind of person that can make this happen. He's not the kind of person that can fulfill the law. How would we know uh, if we were kind of failing at fulfilling the law? I think, first of all, look at what God requires. Look at what the Bible says. Classic example of this is the Ten Commandments, right? Let's start at the top, work your way down to the bottom. What does the first commandment say? You will have no other gods before me. And you can kind of think to yourself, woo, what, my morale? To the best of my knowledge, I've never been in, like, an idol's temple. I've never worshipped an idol. Maybe some of thinking to themselves, I've never been to church. I am safe. <laughs> I've covered, got my bases covered. Um, okay, but what about your heart? What about your heart? In other words, functionally, what does your heart trust? What preoccupies it? What brings it the most fear? or the most delight? What does your heart serve? What do you treat as God? Because that will tell you if you ever worship something besides the one true and living God. You know, what if you're the kind of person who said, you know, my life really feels good, or my life really has meaning, and like bees are buzzing, flowers are giving me like the finger point sign, the sun is shining down on me, selfies are being Instagrammed, only when I'm really free to do what I want to do. Or I'm free to act in whatever way I want to act. And that doesn't mean that like, I want to be a super criminal and rob a bank. I just want to be left alone. And I never want to be stressed out by the people's demands or the people's problems. I, always just want, I just want my privacy. I want my little sphere of influence here so I can do what I want to do in my life. Is that really so much to ask for? So take your stress, take your demands, and mosey on down the road. What if that was us? You know, functionally, who is God in that person's life? I mean, take your pick. Is it them? Is it comfort? It's certainly not the God who calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to spend ourselves on other people. And so you could look at that and say, even though you know, there was never any like tiny gold figurine involved, the whole of that person smacks of worshiping something else. What's the thing that if it were taken away from you would not just ruin your day, but would ruin your life? What is that thing, that accomplishment, that person, that situation, that if you were to achieve it or have it or own it, would validate the whole of your life? All the mistakes you've made, the accomplishments you've done, the hard work you've done, what would validate that? What do you have to create? What do you have to start? What do you have to be involved in or jump into in order for you to matter? When you answer that, you get a much better clue as to who or what functionally acts as your God. That's what the first commandment means by idolatry. 
And just by the nature of the bent of our hearts, we all do that all of the time. You know, name your thing. Money, work, relationships, my body, like, my privacy, like, whatever. My heart is always making idols. It's always seeking after the next thing. And y'all, that's one commandment. There's like nine more commandments to go. I think. <laughs> I'm not very good at math. Uh, <laughs> Paul understood something that all of us have to grapple with. That the entire story of the Bible is leading us to see that the only way for someone to be counted as just or right before God is by faith in Jesus. That we couldn't keep this law. Not just by being a nice person, not by doing great things for humanity or writing the great American novel, not even by doing what the Old Testament law requires. But the thing that the Bible points us to is to have faith in God as the one who grants us mercy. And as he is the one as the one who fulfills the law on our behalf. That's why Paul looks at himself and he says, you know, I've come to the end of the line. I've died to the law. I've died to try to do this thing. I can't do this thing. I'm dead to try to make it happen. And that takes us to our second point. What does it mean to live to Christ? Look at verse 20. This is Paul talking again. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, living by the law, then dying to it, is what led Paul to see his need of God's grace and to start to trust it. That when he put his faith in Jesus, what happens? He was justified before God. And everything in that one moment came about that Paul had been looking for for his entire life. I mean, this is a guy who grew up in a strict religious Jewish household where the preoccupation on his mind was, how hard do I need to work? How many commandments do I need to obey? in order for me to be a man with right standing in front of God, with a record that shows I've loved God and loved my neighbor, and how do I get eternal life? And in that one moment, as he trusts Jesus, all of that is just dumped in his lap for free, at no cost to him. You know, if you're new with us, you never kind of heard this before. I know that some of what we're going to say here may sound like a, uh, a Harry Potter convention, but bear with us. This isn't magic. In this moment, when Paul becomes a Christian, his life is united to Jesus. And in God's eyes, it is as if, for all intents and purposes, some elemental part of Paul and his core identity and his core being is crucified with Jesus, is nailed to the cross with Jesus. So there's something in him that has really died. And yet in that moment, God, in his power, gives Paul the life of Jesus, that he receives perfect standing before God, that he receives a right relationship with him as a son, as an heir of the promises of all of God's people. And Paul looks at that and he says, this is me. This is for me. And if you're a Christian, it is for you too. That in that moment of belief, you inherit everything that is Jesus's. 
all of God's love, all of his welcome, all of his joy is just poured into your lap for free at no cost to you. And nothing can be added to that. Nothing should be added to that. Nothing, you know, must on your part be added to that. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus wept so that God could wipe away your tears. And that Jesus was naked so that God could clothe you in glory. And that he was rejected and scorned and punished so that you could be accepted and delighted in and rewarded. And that Jesus gave up everything so that you could have all of it. And what could Paul or any of us do to add to that, to that perfect man? Like, what could you add to perfect faith? Or what motivation could we tack on to his perfect love or his perfect will or his perfect steadfast mission? Nothing, right? Nothing. He gives all those things to you through his son. And this is a union that is richer, it's deeper, it's more intimate than any marriage. Because it's one where God lives in you. And you live in him and through him. And rather than losing your individuality, rather than losing your identity or selling your brain, you actually become more of the individual that you were made to be. So that even as you got older, you would grow in the life of God. You become more full of love, more full of joy, more full of wisdom and patience. Because you gain it through him. Because what's true of Jesus is what's true of you. And nothing can remove you from him. Because you've been crucified with Christ. And you've been raised with Christ through faith in him. So neither fear or hunger or danger or depression or even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ. All right, so do you see how this speaks to us as students in Carolina? In a place where there's always one more thing to do, or one more club, or one more appointment to kind of jump onto. That if we've died with Christ, then we've died to have to justify ourselves with our schedules. Or we've died to have to stand in front of David and just kind of brag about, or kind of humble brag, about all the homework that we have to do. You died of that, right? You don't have to justify yourself to yourself, to the people around you, to God. Or sometimes we can think to ourselves, you know, if I just learn the next thing as a Christian, that I get that kind of prayer life that I think I need to have, I kind of learn that evangelism tool that I feel like I need to learn, then I'll really become this next wrong Christian, right? But Paul's point in this is to say there is no next thing. Your union with Christ is everything. That if you want a great prayer life, meditate on the fact that Jesus died for you and gives you everything you need and thank God for that. And ask for forgiveness when you don't live according to that. That's the recipe for a good prayer life. If you want a great evangelism tool, talk about what God has done in your life through Jesus Christ. And speak in the first person, not the third. That I deserved to die. But God died for me. And that's real evangelism. That's real love. As Paul says, if justification were through the law, or through our clubs, or through learning that <coughs> next thing, then Christ died for no purpose. But we've been justified by Christ, by the whole of his death, by the whole of his life. 
how would we apply this to ourselves tonight in this room? Right? If Christ has loved you and given himself for you, then think about this. Then you can approach one another with humble confidence. Not the kind of confidence that tries to size one person up with another. Where you're trying to prove, all right, how many places have I traveled? How much stuff have I done? What can I say about myself when I enter this group of people? When I go talk to this person? But the kind of humble confidence where you don't have to think about yourself. Because someone else has already signed off on you. And so you can listen to somebody. You can care for someone. And not try to brag in front of them. So we stand together as people who are forgiven the same sins of anger, of pride, of lust, of materialism. But we also stand having received the same love from God. The same Savior who died. The same perfect, healthy, soul-reviving union with Jesus. And that kind of humble confidence is the sort of thing that real friendships are built on. Where you can actually make friends with someone here in RUF, and maybe one day you'll be, be at each other's retirement parties. Like 50 years from now on the moon. That'd be cool. <laughs> or it's the kind of thing where you can meet someone here at RUF, and you can know, because we have humble confidence, where we can love one another, say hard things to one another, that I can date someone here, and this can be a foundation of a marriage that really lasts until death do us part. And that's powerful. That's good. Or it's even the kind of thing where you can go and approach someone tonight at the end of a large group that you don't know, and you can just be yourself. And you can say, I, maybe the start of this will be a little awkward because we've never talked to each other, because we don't know each other. But that's okay. Because it's Jesus that justifies me. Not my conversation. It's not my personality. And so I can enter this thing with humble confidence. I'll look at this. Uh, there's a former minister who tells a story, and I heard it, and I was like, i got to keep this. So I am. Uh, <laughs> but he talks about this guy that was in his ministry for all four years of his college career, and he was an ROTC recruit. And on the last day of college, he graduates, and he's supposed to enter the Navy. But as he graduates, the Navy hands him a letter that says that enough people are already in the position that he's been recruited for that he can enter the Navy, and on that very same day, he is honorably discharged with all the rights and all the privileges of a full Naval officer as though he had served his entire term. So he graduates is immediately like entered into the Navy and immediately honorably discharged, and he goes out into the world for the rest of his life with all the benefits and all the rights, all the privileges, a full naval officer. So he will one day be able to enjoy uh, the government health care that a full-on military personnel receives, that you and I don't get unless we actually like serve in the Army. But he didn't actually serve. Someone served in his place. No, that is a picture of what Jesus has done for you. That the moment you believe all the rights, all the privileges of God, of Jesus Christ himself, in God's presence are yours, as though you were him. All the access to God, all the fellowship with God, all the friendship with him is yours in Jesus. As one theologian said, if we've been forgiven everything and given everything, then all we lack is the faith to believe it. So let's pray now for faith.
believe that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe